Hello and welcome back to our Sabbath School from Home podcast. We're glad to have you here with us. We've we've got a great discussion ahead of us today. Uh, fairly fairly simple terms. All we have to deal with is uh, the nature of uh, personal experience of Christ, personal testimony, and the assurance of salvation. So, forty minutes should we should be able to knock that off easily. We'll at least give it a go. My name's Cameron. Glad to have you here with us, and very much looking forward to the discussion ahead. Yeah, g'day. I'm Ken. Uh, good to be here. I'm Luke, and particularly happy to be here this evening. And I'm Lachlan, and this time I'm joining from the holy lands of Kurunbong in New South Wales. Ah, the New Jerusalem. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, as I said, there's a lot of themes in today's lesson. It's interesting because it's the second week on personal testimony, uh, but they've drawn out a lot of interesting new themes. Uh, one of them is the assurance of salvation. And one of them is, you know, commentary on Christ's first missionaries who, who were not his disciples. They were people he'd healed. And uh, the nature of sharing our story um, with those around us. And there's one phrase in particular in the, in the lesson that I think we'll adopt as a bit of a focus point. And it's this. Uh, the lesson states, and we'll explore the context later, but the lesson states at one point that you can't share what you don't have. And I, th- I think that that will provide us with a fair amount of food for thought. Uh, we're going to read a passage today from Acts. I'm going to start in Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism did you experience? he asked. And they replied, The baptism of John. Paul said, John's baptism called for repentance from sin, but John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Okay, now that's the the passage we're going to talk about. There's some other good stories that follow on from from this one, which I'm sure will get some mention. But what strikes you from from this story? I immediately see some, some things that I personally really struggle with. Right at the end there with the the Holy Spirit coming after they were baptized in the name of Jesus and then speaking in tongues and prophesying, um, which I believe we talked about on previous episodes. If if that is the, the mark of a true baptism, um, if visible symbols like that are meant to accompany baptism, then, then maybe I haven't received the right baptism. Well, and, and what... What was the speaking in tongues like, and what did they prophesy? And did it? Um, I assume it came true, but what was it? I mean, there's so little detail here, and and it seems a strange thing to mention without further explanation, from from my point of view, from our point of view now, because this is not the experience that any of us have when we're baptized. Well, none none of us uh, outside of a charismatic or Pentecostal tradition, in any event. Well, yes. So within mainstream Adventism, we don't expect that people will will speak in tongues and prophesy at their baptism. Of course, Ken, the, the, the New Testament church, particularly earlier in Acts, is Pentecostal in the most literal sense. Absolutely. Um, one, of, one of the great formative moments of the church happens on the day of Pentecost. And and uh, what, perhaps one reason why this is not explained is it would have been something that everyone was familiar with. Well, qu- quite so. And indeed, when you look at Pentecost itself, and then when you look at all, uh, well, 
I don't know about all, but many of the other passages, uh, including this one in 19 verse 6 of Acts, um, the uh, presence of the Holy Spirit uh, is associated with uh, speaking in tongues and prophesying. And it's clear that that's the case because uh, what we do in Seventh-day Adventism is to try to uh, limit or explain what speaking in tongues actually means in a way that's uh, different from or inconsistent with uh, the modern-day charismatic or Pentecostal uh, traditions um, because we accept that there is a connection between speaking in tongues and the presence of the Holy Spirit. What about, the, what about Apollos as a person? He seems to be a very active, energetic sort of guy. Yeah, I was looking at a, at a little progression of words there. Uh, in verse 25, uh, he'd been taught the way of the Lord and he taught others with an in, about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. So in verse 25, there's with accuracy. But then in verse 26, Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue. They took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. So he sort of mm. starts with accuracy and then gets even more accuracy. But then when he goes off on a, on a trip, it seems, Paul comes and he asks one simple question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they replied, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Well, that certainly seems a, a, some deficiency in the accuracy of, of Apollos' teaching. Well, and Priscilla and Aquila also, because they had spoken to him prior to Paul speaking to him and instructed him, but they also didn't. Except that I think he'd probably gone by that point. Uh, so they had probably instructed him in the Holy Spirit and sent him off to Achaia. Mm. And then uh, and then Apollo, and, uh, uh, and while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul went to Ephesus and spoke to oh, the people at Ephesus. Yes, so he's yes. in a different place. Talking to different people. Yeah. Yes, you're right. And, and Paul and Apollos obviously have a fair bit to do with each other. They're around the same parts of the world. And Apollos is obviously looked upon very positively. Uh, he's a great asset because he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures of Jesus. That's what Paul was doing. Now, Paul obviously is recognized by Luke, the writer of Acts, as being a very pivotal person in the establishment of the New Testament church. So Luke's not overlooking Paul, but that, but that is as a one-line endorsement of a person. That's a very strong endorsement of Apollos. And it's almost as if Luke's saying, well, look, Paul's not the only one who is going and doing these things. He's just, he's the one whose story I'm telling. And mm -hmm. uh, and later on, of course, in one of the books is, now, which one is it? Is it in um, Ephesians or Corinthians? I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Ah, yeah, oh, here we go. 1 uh, um, Corinthians chapter 3, verses uh, 18 and following. Um, and uh, particularly 20 and 21. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or present or future, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So there was this competition there between uh, um, uh, Apollos and, and Paul uh, in the eyes of the Corinthians. Some were saying, I follow Paul. Some saying, I follow Apollos. Um, but we're both servants. Uh, I planted, yeah. Apollos watered, and God made it grow. It's interesting that uh, you see sort of the early, even even this soon, the early signs of factions yeah. within the believers, you know. Um, certainly, probably not instigated by the actual missionaries, by Paul or Apollos, but in their wake, people start to develop rivalries yeah. uh, without, without any... <laughs> Uh, external impetus. There's a story lock that Dad tells that I, I can't remember. You, you may be able to remember the person involved, but there was someone who was uh, who was commenting on on unity in the church, asked to comment on unity in the church, and he said, "Well, yes, of course, the Christians are very particular about some things." And in his local church, there's a raging debate on at the moment about whether we're saved by the blood of Christ or saved into. Are we saved by Christ or saved into Christ or something like that? And uh, this this person said that he himself is is 
completely in favour of one of these positions and diametrically opposed to the other position. Only trouble is he can never remember which one is which um, that he's opposed to <laughs> and which is the one he's in favour. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's there seems to be something that that is a little out of grasp here in in what happens in where we read in acts 18 and 19 because the believers say uh, you know when when asked what baptism did you experience they replied and the baptism of john and back in verse 25 apollos however he knew only about john's baptism but just before that and he taught others about jesus so he's clearly speaking the message about Jesus, but somehow he's only knew only about John's baptism. I find it kind of difficult, and maybe this is because for us, the story of John and the story of Jesus are so entwined in the way we read them in our scriptures. I just find it difficult to access in a, in the same way as that as that humorous anecdote can. I find it difficult to access what the what is actually the nuance here. Don't forget, Locke, that John caused a massive stir. And contemporary historians wrote as much about John as about Christ. And, and uh, you know, Christ's ministry only lasted three years. Uh, John, John was a huge sensation. And John was also, John's death was also a massive political coup, uh, as was Christ's in its own way. So it is quite possible that Apollos as a Jew, had travelled to Israel, but he's not from Israel. He's a native of Alexandria, and he's living in where Ephesus or Corinth or somewhere. Um, and it's quite possible that he had made a journey to Jerusalem as a devout Jew, perhaps at a Passover, and, and had heard John preach. Mm. And maybe his only knowledge of Christ was uh, through John's message. Uh, okay. Well, that goes right to the heart, doesn't it, of of the theme that you introduced, um, being able to share f- from what we know. It seems that that although Apollos is speaking with accuracy, uh, there's still more accuracy required. And Priscilla and Aquila um, took him aside and explained the way of God a bit. And then there was, you know, Paul coming along to to do some more things. Is it because these other people have? have a different experience from which to speak. I mean, you do get the sense from the story that Apollos was speaking with more conviction than uh, his level of experience warranted, in the sense that he's vigorously debating Jews in synagogues and and publicly speaking, and he's not actually got the full story. Mm. Uh, It's like a journalist publishing an article before he's, you know, checked every source. But... It's equally the case that Apollos is obviously someone very well-intentioned, someone willing to accept correction, someone who's anxious to learn the whole truth. And God seems to be quite comfortable using Apollos, even though Apollos is you know, at a different stage on his journey than Paul is. It, it does say in 25 that he had been instructed and taught about Jesus accurately. So clearly there, is, there are levels of understanding which are sufficient to teach, but are not yet the best understanding that a person could could have, and in and indeed we we would never achieve in this life a perfect understanding. Paul himself illustrates that wonderfully. Yeah, I was, that's exactly what I was going to say, Luke. We're, we're all Apollos, really, aren't we? We're all people who we, we hope to preach with accuracy, and yet we all really need that. We're in constant need of that next next bit of correction. This, this story in Acts is followed immediately by another story of people uh, preaching a message that they're not fully informed about. Uh, but these people don't get a very positive uh, rap in the book of Acts. And I'm thinking of a bit further on in chapter 19 from verse 13 onwards, where there's, there's some Jews who are very impressed with all the miracles that are happening uh, around Paul. And they decide that they're going to get in on the action. And they go around uh, casting out demons. And they, they say to people who are demon-possessed, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And there's seven sons of a priest who are right into this. And one day an evil spirit answered them back and said, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And then this man who had the evil spirit jumped on them 
and overpowered them all. He overpowered all seven of them. And he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. The interesting thing about that is, it seems to me that they had some initial success. Uh, that they weren't challenged by uh, many of the demons. They, they, they in fact, went around and uh, mm. invoked the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, driving out evil spirits. Ken, I think you're right, because in Acts 19, verse 15, it says, but one time when they tried it, the evil spirit replied. Uh, that, to me, does imply that it had succeeded a number of times before, because otherwise it would say the first time that they tried or but when they tried it, you know, they, they got answered to by this evil spirit. We, we are also these people too, though, aren't we? Because when we, when we pray to God, we, our, our prayer is heavily informed by the experience of other people. Not in a negative way, but like positively, because we belong to a community and we tell stories about the history of our church and the history of God's interaction with people. And, and when we think of God in a practical sense, I know, I know everyone says that we have a personal relationship with God, but most of my knowledge of God's character has been given to me by his, his interaction with other people. In the Bible, for example. We are all in this position where, where obviously our knowledge, our personal knowledge of God is continually growing like Apollos' was, and we hope to be approaching closer intimacy and knowledge of God at all times. But there is a sense in which when we pray, we are always praying to the God of someone else. And we take it on faith. We look at the stories in the Bible and the church and we say, given that God has so acted in other people's lives, maybe he will act in mine. And even just that, it's a, it's a positive thing. It's faith. It's a commendable thing. Um, to say, well, you know, I, I think I'll throw my lot in with this God. Yeah, not only that, but God, much more commonly in the Old Testament, ex acknowledges that in the way he introduces himself to people. I am the God of your father Abraham. You know, I am the God of Isaac your and your ancestors. God comes to people, I'm thinking particularly in the Exodus story, but but also throughout some of the the prophets and the stories in the Old Testament, God explicitly acknowledges that he is the God who they have come to know through the string of people and the accumulation of experiences that, that have led to where they are. The criticism of these people is that they're using a spiritual experience that's not their own in the name of Christ whom Paul preaches. But we, we are all of us in that situation where we're using a spiritual experience that's not our own. A huge amount of my knowledge of God is drawn from the experience of other people. Yeah. I mean, particularly in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we rely very heavily on the spiritual experience of a prophet, visions and the like that we haven't ourselves uh, experienced. Uh, and yet we place a very significant uh, emphasis on the spiritual experience of uh, another person. So there's an interesting mm. contrast between between these people here, who who are who are ill-informed or maybe ill-intentioned. What is the difference between these people and Apollos? Perhaps I, I speak for everyone based on that silence in saying I, I honestly don't know. Mm. And I have wondered about it before. They're both using their their personal experience, uh, such as it is. These Jews have seen personally seen miracles take place because of Paul, and they say, "All right, well, let's use that our experience, such as it is." And Apollos is using his experience, such as it is. I mean, it doesn't necessarily say that the Book of Acts. I'm just reading the account now, itself. The writing of the book doesn't itself really judge these seven sons, does it? No, um, it just points to the, the risk that they took. But, uh, I mean, they, they were speaking quite accurately in one sense, uh, trying to be as precise as possible. Uh, in the mm. name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, uh, I command you to come out. We want to make sure we know exactly who we're invoking. So in that sense, they're similar to Apollos. The, the, the one negative aspect, Cam, does come, the, the slightly negative implication about either their knowledge or their motives, comes in the mouth of the evil spirit because it implies the evil spirit says, I know Jesus, 
Well, that might be obvious. And I know Paul. So that is clearly acknowledging in some way the significance of Paul. And then says, but who are you? Now, Mm. being unknown to an evil spirit is not the same thing as being unknown to God. So it, it doesn't even really imply that they are somehow poorly motivated or disconnected from God. They may well be quite connected from God, but in some way or other, the evil spirit does not know them. Mm. I'm I'm not sure what to do with that little piece of 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 language there. The little piece of information. I don't even really think it helps resolve this confusion. I said that we borrow heavily on other people's experience, and. Let us hope that even though I'm forced to rely on other people's experience of God, that I would be hungry for a personal experience of my own. In other words, we draw on other people's by necessity. Um, we, we each of us hope to have something. It would be possible, wouldn't it, to, be, to engage in this sort of activity, the casting out of demons, just for the personal glory, without any real effort to have a, a, an authentic connection with Christ. Just to, just to reap the benefits of being a celebrity. Because it does say, doesn't it, that when they saw the miracles, there's some reference about when they saw it happening. Let me have a look. Well, the, the very previous verse, uh, Luke, Acts 19, verse 12, um, God has given Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. When handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. Hmm. I mean, at one one level, what I hear this the, the that that little comment from the evil spirit in this story, it's almost saying, you know, be really careful if you try and play in this spiritual game. Make sure that you're well founded and well connected. Don't don't dabble in it as as a sort of fun thing to do without acknowledging its seriousness. And verse seventeen follows on from this and says. The story of what happened to these seven people spread quickly through all Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike. A solemn fear descended on the city and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. So it led to people taking the name of Jesus and the sort of spiritual, what I, what I interpret is they, they sort of inter- engaged with or acknowledged the power of, of a sort of spiritual realm and respected that. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, they were seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. So there there's, it seems to be a connection between their fear and holding the name of Jesus in high honour. That's not something that we would normally want. Uh, and, and what lesson then is there for us? Is it don't dabble unless you are really confident in your faith and convicted of your rightness or dabble anyway because it turns out right (laughs) and god is honored even when you fail yeah exactly i was going to say when you look at the story of apollos um he he is in error he's teaching an incomplete story he doesn't quite have all the personal experience he needs to do the thing he's trying to do uh but he's a real god really it seems backs him up uh, so I think I think it is a complicated comparison. Certainly, it, at a trivial level, I'm thinking back to my pathfindering days and the slightly scary adrenaline stories that would be told around campfires and the 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 sort of campfire worships in which the moral of the story is the power of the name of Jesus to cast away demons and all things that are bad. Um, almost as if it is a kind of magic incantation of power that that seems closer to these seven sons of Sceva than it does to to Paul or Apollos really and, and maybe it does just call us to go beyond that slightly trivialized engagement with this all as a clever magic trick and really ensure that that we do have a connection with the powerful name of Jesus so do we agree or do we not agree and, and by the way, I'm taking this phrase out of context. We're going to get to the context in which the lesson uses it soon. So taking this sentence completely out of context from the lesson. Do we agree that you can't share something that you don't have? There's truth to it, but it's not the complete truth. It's perhaps a bit like Apollos. I, I think, Cam, there is maybe a useful way to think about it in that 
I may not have knowledge of something myself or full or complete knowledge, but I may have enough to share something useful with you. And then what you do with it in turn may be more than what I could do with it. So I have not shared the full thing with you, Mm. but I have shared what I could. And then you have accessed more because of what I did, even though I didn't have all of it. Um, Mm. uh, Maybe a good way to look at it is, is to say, well, um, I mean, you are, you are a mathematician um, and I'm not, but maybe I've found a really good research paper about something and I don't fully understand it. I can still share it with you. The point's a strong one. And actually, I think the analogy with education is an interesting one. Uh, I've got friends who are primary teachers. Being a good primary teacher is an incredible, uh, it requires incredible discipline, focus and talent. It requires you to be uh, have an, an intuitive understanding of how children learn, and it's not just children in general, but particular children with particular needs. Managing uh, and and managing the morale of a class of eight-year-olds requires particular skills. You can't just say I'm going to become a primary teacher on the side while I run off and have a career as a brain surgeon. Um, it's really a full-time job. Uh, there's there's a lot that needs doing. It's the same for high school teachers. It's the same for university lecturers. The point is that at all of these levels of education, there's people teaching maths, there's people teaching science, there's people teaching English uh, history who have never done a piece of original history analysis on a primary source, who have never, you know, engaged firsthand in the scientific method and in a new field where knowledge is just unfolding and where there's new things or who have never you know created new maths um, in the research setting but they're entrusted with the introducing these topics to the next generation and it, it it's ridiculous to suppose that it would be possible to be a real scientist with the sorts of level engagement that gives you a deep and intrinsic first-hand experience and yet also have enough time to get across all the curricular requirements and, and all the different skills you need as a secondary teacher and all the administrative challenges and all the uh, learning about different social and um, cognitive uh, types of students and disorders and uh, spectrums and uh, different teaching techniques and all the rest of it. Uh, you couldn't do it. Uh, it must necessarily be the case that people teaching at schools must be teaching things they obviously have experience they've obviously learnt a lot of science and maths and english and history and everything but uh, it's also the case that there are some distance from that discipline's sphere of activity and to take it even further cam it might well be that the experience that is necessary to fully engage in that discipline precludes an ability to explain it simply and clearly to others because uh, that complete immersion brings with it uh, even visceral understanding um, of how it works uh, that simply uh, is not uh, reducible uh, to clear articulation. Um, At the end of the day, there has to be a paper that can be produced. There have to be uh, submissions that can be made. Um, But uh, often uh, it is uh, a judgment uh, and a sense uh, of how the thing should be uh, that's based on uh, years and thousands of hours of exposure to a particular field uh, that, that gives the expertise. And that's not something that can be explained in a legal studies class. Yes, and I think that it's very notable that most introductions to a topic in, say, a high school maths textbook are heavily synthesised from centuries of work in that field where over time people have realised how something ought to be explained, how it should be introduced. And and in point of fact, the way it's presented is, is not how it happened historically. It's not how the people who were doing it for the first time thought of it. 
Um, it's only obvious in hindsight through trial and error. What what are the methods and mechanisms? I, I like the fact in this sense that the canon was decided centuries after a lot of the documents were written. You know, because what it was third century, is that right, Locke? Uh, mm, we need I think Clancy. So. Clancy. Clancy would let us know. So people looked at a couple of hundred years of church history and said, not, it's not just the evidence of the text themselves, but it's the evidence of their impact on the church. Can we see evidence that this is, that this is God-inspired? Mm. Because sometimes the act of sharing something, it takes time to synthesize the best way of doing it. And the people who are at the cutting edge, like you say, can might be so deep into it that, that they can't explain what they're doing they won't be the ones who get to decide how it, they, their topics are introduced to other people. Mm. There's a really interesting, and not um, it's a sort of a counterexample, but it's not disagreeing with what you're saying. It's just uh, looking at the slightly different aspect of this. There's a guy in the US who's done a lot of research in, into how to more effectively teach physics, in particular at tertiary level at university. And one of the things that he's done in the middle of lectures, this is in a uni environment where you can have 500 people in a lecture theater studying first year physics. The problem with first year physics is that the lecturer has probably been teaching it for some decades. It's physics that's been known for centuries. It's so easy for the experienced practitioner to forget what it's like to not know that physics. And so what this guy discovered is that at certain key points, it's actually super effective for him to take a break from his lecture and give the class two minutes to do a quick on-the-board multi-choice question. He throws the right answer up, and then he says, turn to your person sitting next to you and explain why you chose the answer you chose. And what he's doing is he's letting the people who have only just learnt that concept, they've only just put the idea together in their head, teach it to their peers, explain it to their peers, because they are the people who have just worked out how to understand it. They can explain it better than, than the lecturer who has literally forgotten what it was like not to know it. And that relates back to this, this whole idea in Acts about sharing the message of Jesus, because it, it does make me wonder if there's some sense in which there's a more ability to share something that you only just recently grasped or comprehended or understood and that it may get gradually perhaps slightly more difficult to go through those introductory entry conversations when about concepts that you've that have become so internalized that they're sort of default modes of thinking and you've forgotten what it was like to need to be convinced of them i'm not sure whether this is helpful but uh, Scott Peck, uh, who wrote The Road Less Travelled, um, wrote another interesting work about the afterlife. Uh, I was just looking for it in my bookshelf here, um, and I can't find it. Uh, but he describes the. Uh, it's not certainly not one that fits comfortably with Adventist conceptions of the afterlife. Um, uh, but he describes how uh, how um, people who've uh, gone uh, into the afterlife and who've lived in this spiritual realm, um, they uh, when they first go there, they can uh, again manifest physically um, in the world. But over time, they forget how to do that because they're so used to uh, living in the spiritual realm. And, and it becomes very hard work for them to uh, um, interact again with the, with, with the physical world. Um, perhaps... A similar sort of concept, although not sure it's one that's going to be terribly helpful for the podcast. It, it is helpful, Ken, because it's a great segue, because I promised the listeners that we we're going to talk about assurance of salvation, mm. which which is synonymous in the Adventist church with with um, the after salvation means afterlife. And the, the context in which the lesson said you can't share something you don't have is in the context of assurance of salvation. You can't help other people be assured of their salvation if you are not assured of your salvation. There are two real struggles that I have with this, and they're completely uh, intertwined. Um, one is, what do you mean by salvation? Uh, and the other is, why is it so important to be assured of that? Um, 
uh, however you might define it. Uh, so they're two concepts that this maybe is, we could explore. This is uh, uh, salvation means different things at different times. If it's a Friday afternoon and you've got the wrong class in front of you, uh, salvation means, I don't know, a fire alarm going off so you can all go out and stand on the oval. Uh, yep, saved by the uh, bell. Saved by the bell. Uh, that's what students say, isn't it? Salvation for students means getting out of. I'd never. You're right, Locke. I should think of this from both perspectives. The the students are not stuck in in the class with difficult grade eights. They're stuck in a class with a difficult teacher. <laughs> so, and that's me. So, uh, yeah. What what a good perspective. Uh, saved by the bell, and you get to go home. Is, is, that, is that what salvation means? Well, of course it must, because uh, it follows the phrase for whom the bell tolls. Um, so <laughs> it's clearly simply dealing and only dealing with the afterlife. Yeah, I see. <laughs> so, exactly. Uh, it, what was the other question, Ken, though? You, the other question was, why should we be assured of it? Why is assurance so important? It's because everyone tells us it is, right? And so obviously it is. But, but different things are important to different people. Uh, some people are just naturally, some people are just really concerned about the state of the decline of the arts under COVID. And they're just really worried about it. And some people are really concerned about... Climate change. Climate change, yeah. Oh, we had a student who picked an elective subject at grammar recently where you could do a subject on anything you wanted, anything that you cared about. And this student did a very engaging uh, project which included some sewing uh, on South Korean fashion. Wow! So they we're all interested in different things. The trouble is, Ken, I'm I'm not as worried about what happens after I die as I am about tr- ensuring I make good use of the time I've got here. Well, I, I, I think can't, that can't agree more. Trying to make sure that I use the time I've got here on Earth wisely seems to me a full-time job and i just don't have time to worry about uh, what's coming next so much of it seems to me that we, we need this assurance that we're in the right waiting room um uh until you know the day arrives um uh, before or after our death um we, we've just got to have uh, made sure i've followed the correct signs to the correct waiting room yeah adrian plus describes a train um passage where he knew he'd have to change trains at a certain station, change lines to get to his destination. And every single employee he asked of British Rail gave him different advice about what station he'd have to change and what platform he'd have to change at. And he asked about six people and they all gave him different advice and it's told in in great Adrian Plath style. Um, And his question was, well, where do we change for paradise? (laughs) So... There, there is one sense, I think, in which some sort of assurance or at least some sort of ability to be at peace is valuable. Um, you know, you hear a lot of stories of Adventists who, for <clears throat> more or less as a result of certain historical emphases within the denomination, get to the latter stage of their life where they don't have as much chance to change what they've spent their life here on earth doing and they're reflecting back on it, and they don't have a whole lot to look forward to in this life. And they, you hear stories of them being traumatized in distress at the thought that they may have done something wrong that will cost them their salvation. And I don't think that that is a healthy or a helpful state of mind for anyone to be in. And if what is needed to get out of that sort of state of mind is what we would call assurance, then, then that's where I think it has some value, Ken. Um, Look, I, I, I quite agree, but the, the, the term in the way that we use it uh, to be connected with um, uh, this salvation, uh, which is basically um, making sure you're in the right place uh, after you die um, or when Christ returns in the Adventist perspective, I think is an unhelpful emphasis. And the assurance comes... And what I would just want to do for the people who are so distressed about that um, is to actually be able to introduce them to God, introduce them to Jesus, introduce them to the God of love. Um, uh, you, you have to work very hard uh, to get God to reject you. Um, uh, he's hanging out 
to hang out with you. Um, mm. And 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 uh, it's uh, we need to get that picture um, uh, and that full picture of God's interaction in our world now um, and His desire for us, deep desire for us. Um, and and in that sense, we can have assurance because of God's abundant and overwhelming love for us. Um, uh, that's not to say it always comes easily and is felt easily, um, but it is true nonetheless. So what I hear you say, Ken, is that assurance of salvation as a as a concept or as an idea is far less valuable and important than the experience of salvation. Mm. Mm. And indeed, to describe the experience of salvation uh, as uh, an interaction with the living God, um, that's where it's at. And, to, and, and, and that interaction will breed the uh, confidence because we live a life without lack in God's presence. And there's, there must be times when it doesn't feel like we have a meaningful relationship with God. And at such times, you might need assurance in the sense that, in the sense that, uh, what am I saying? It's like if if I'd uh, if I'd if Mel had said she'd come and pick me up from school, and she was half an hour late, uh, and I'm starving, hungry, I might incline to be cross. You know, one explanation could be put forward is, oh, well, maybe Mel doesn't care for you quite so much. And to, if anyone said that to me, I'd say, no, no, I've got I've got a bank of experiences I can draw on. Mm-hmm. The, the likelihood is the, she's got a flat tire, and I'm quite distressed she, about the fact that I can't go and help her with it. Exactly, yeah. So, so there's an assurance there that uh, is not based in how we feel in the moment, mm. every moment. Mm. Uh, I like the hymn "Blessed Assurance" because I agree wholeheartedly with the lyricist uh, that of what we should be assured. We should be assured, "Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine." Yeah. What, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, which is what you were saying, Ken, that that the experience of Christ being ours is the thing we're assured of. I, we badly need him. I may have said this on this podcast, and I've said it in almost every sermon I've ever preached. Someone needs to write a hymn, Blessed Unassurance, where we list all the things that we are not assured of and say that these, these things we're not assured of are blessed unassurances, because of what we are assured of. And that's so true, but there's also an inadequacy. I'm about to thump the desk again. Um, there's, there, there's also an inadequacy in what we think we need Christ for. Um, uh, and, and that we think that we need him only to uh, get us into heaven. Um, I think... We need Christ for so much more. We need Jesus for so much more. We need Him for our life now. Uh, we need Him. Uh, we need Him so that we can uh, be the teacher uh, with the heart of compassion uh, in front of the difficult class where we're praying the bell mm. will go on Friday afternoon, or the um, uh, or, or dealing with the uh, recidivist offender. Um, to see them as Christ uh, uh, in front of me. We need Christ to do that. Um, we need him so much uh, for our life here now. And he offers that, uh, the kingdom here now. And that's the salvation. Uh, the salvation no, starts now. The eternal life starts here now. There's there's a real sense that I, I'm I've, uh, having interesting discussions with a teacher at school about free will. And uh, and also having a, an interesting discussion with another friend, or many friends about free will. One was an atheistic philosophy teacher at uh, grammar, and one's a retired theology lecturer. Uh, <clears throat> and it's very interesting. The, the Bible's quite ambivalent about free will. And it's, it's definitely the case that it is possible for us to make choices that turn us into the sort of people who are unable to cho- choose any longer. And a classic case of this would be an addiction. And I think of the last battle where there's the dwarves who are convinced that 
Aslan is a myth, and they've convinced themselves so effectively that when he appears in front of them, they explain it away as being a mirage. And and Aslan says that they are beyond his help. He literally can't help them anymore. And that's a frightening idea. It's a frightening idea to suppose that that uh, once you've gotten to the point where you can't choose, there is a sense in which you're you're not a person. And that's frightening. That's really frightening because the people who end up in an addiction do not choose the addiction. The people who end up being um, consumed by grievances they can't let go of don't choose. They don't say, I think I'd like to become that sort of person. Um, It just happens through the small incidental choices they make along the course of their life. And that's a terrifying concept that the little choices I'm making today are going to control who I will be in 50 years' time. It's a very terrifying concept. It is, and that is the thing that I want salvation from. Uh, From the salvation from the fact that uh, I I am not convinced in any way that I am capable of making the right sort of choices that that will, it's not even that will turn me into a good person, that will turn me into a person capable of choice. In the future, um, that's the thing that 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 possibility that I could turn into someone, you know, so consumed by greed or by grievances or by a sense of uh, righteous indignation or by religious pride um, or by substance addiction, or that that I could turn into someone something less than a person. Uh, that's that's what I need salvation from. And in one sense, we have good cause for that fear because uh, we dealt with the story of the rich man and Lazarus um, uh, previously. Uh, and that that's a, a classic example of that where Jesus said, look, you know, even if, I think he said this, uh, you know, even Moses himself or Abraham himself came back, uh, uh, mm. they wouldn't, you wouldn't listen to him. Um, so God save us from that. And yet... Um, with Paul, uh, we can say, by the grace of God, uh, we are saved from that. This brings us back to the story of Apollos, because uh, Paul comes and talks to these believers. And he the thing that seems to matter to Paul is, so you've been baptized, but is God at work in your life? Have you received the Holy Spirit? And you know, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, repentance, and there seems to be in this some sort of intellectual ascent. And we we very fo- much focus on eternal salvation being a, an issue of repentance. And Paul says, "Well, yeah, good. Um, repentance is really important. But is God actually working in your life right now?" And the new believers are surprised, and that they've not heard of the Holy Spirit. And Paul doesn't really see their conversion as being something complete until they have received the Holy Spirit. So closing thoughts. We're running out of time as we always do. We couldn't fit all those topics into 40 minutes. I was wrong at the start. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that our listeners have many comments. They can email them to us. Uh, the, the address is sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com if anyone's interested. Any closing thoughts from you guys? I find that a very confronting question that you just asked, Cam, in the general sense, if I apply it to myself personally, have I received the Holy Spirit? Is it at work in my life? If, if that is, if that is, uh, shown by the signs of speaking in tongues and prophesying, then, then no, I haven't. And I'm not sure I'd even want to, because those things I really struggle with the idea that they have anything to do with salvation and faith and, and what benefit they were to the early church. Um, it's, a, it's a really difficult topic for me. And um, I think that God is at work in my life and is making me more into what I should be as his child when I compare myself to what I was 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, that seems clear, but I I don't have the sort of assurances that we seem to be talking about at all. I racked with doubt. Mm. That's not a particularly uplifting final thought, but that is where I am at the end of this discussion. Mm. 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 
So the thought that sticks in my mind goes back to that original question quoted from the lesson or that, that idea you can't share what you don't have. On the one hand, I agree with its call f to authenticity. I think when taken as a, as a call to be true, to be honest to yourself, um, if, if racked with, with doubt, to be honest with that, not to try and be someone that you aren't, then I wholeheartedly agree with that. But I also disagree with it because I see the immense ability to guide people to something meaningfully and with value um, that's, that's beyond my own position to teach, you know, this, the old idea of the, the, the student has become the master. A good teacher, I think, can teach a, a student to be even better at whatever they're teaching than the teacher is. And that's true in so many areas. I'm sure it's true in, in our understanding of, of God and of the message of Jesus. And I think that it is partly achieved by the participation of the Holy Spirit. I, I want to reflect on your uh, comments, Luke, um, because uh, I want to acknowledge the reality, uh, the paradoxical side of the experience of God as well. Um, and to uh, uh, recognize that we do see through a glass darkly um, and that there is room uh, for doubt. Um, uh, I want to acknowledge that um, and I express it has been and remains uh, a large part uh, of my walk with God um, uh, but it remains nonetheless a walk with God I think that's a great thought to uh, to leave on Ken as always we, we're happy to hear your feedback we're interested to hear if you have any ideas on this discussion uh, that informs uh, if you've got any perspectives on, on how your experience with God enables you uh, to share what you have with other people. Uh, we hope you'll join us again next week and we look forward to, to I was going to say, talking to you then. I'm afraid it's very one-sided conversation, at least in the form of the podcast, but at least to, to sharing our discussion with you and we hope and pray that, that this uh, speaks to you. Mm. Amen.